0: My name is Allison Felis, and this is I'll Follow You, a podcast featuring light and lively conversations about film, music, and creative culture, coming to you from the People's Republic of Rogers Park on the far northeast side of Chicago. Today, I'm truly delighted to be in conversation with musician, actor, and translator Tim Clark. As an actor... Tim has performed throughout Europe, North America, and the UK, including close to 1,000 appearances on London's West End stages. He's had leading roles in productions including Jesus Christ Superstar, Blood Brothers, The Buddy Holly Story, Dusty the Musical, The Glenn Miller Story, and The Demon Headmaster. Tim's television roles have included Sir Richard Bingham in The Spanish Armada, Fireman Mick Foster in Emmerdale, and Detective Inspector Goodman in Canary Wharf as well as numerous TV commercials. As a musician, he's written and recorded the albums Life Changes and To Love and Be Loved, and was the winner of the Netherlands International Song Festival and a finalist at the Isle of Wight Song Festival. A highly competent German and French speaker, Tim has also translated into English the German musicals A Touch of Color and Scrooge, A Christmas Tale, as well as project-managed the critically acclaimed music theater piece in May which features all original music by Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy, which is what brought us together. In the spring of 2017, I wrote a long, loving post on my blog, Queen of Peaches, about the recording of In May that appeared as a bonus disc on the 2016 Divine Comedy album Foreverland. In the years since, it's become one of the most highly trafficked pieces on my site. Fans of Neil Hannon are nothing if not devoted to his music, Tim himself found and read the piece and reached out to me about it. And the rest, as you'll soon hear, is history. I was so excited that he was willing to spend a solid 90 minutes talking me through the ins and outs of his extremely varied career, as well as the creation of this breathtaking set of songs, which have meant so much to me over the past few years. And now, my conversation with Tim Clark. Well, Tim Clark, I am so, so excited to have you on the podcast with me here today. We've been chatting a little bit, but to get us kicked off into the uh, into the real recording, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Alison. Um, it's a real pleasure and an honor for me to be here. I'm very, uh, very grateful and humbled and looking forward to a nice chat with you.
0: Well, I just I appreciate your time and your willingness. and I just, yeah, I'm thrilled to uh, talk to you and to and I want to hear all about everything. So I mean the, <laughs> the thing <laughs> the thing that brought us together, of course, was uh, in May, the delightful yes. um, musical piece uh, with music by Neil Hannon of the divine comedy and your involvement as the translator with that. And, but then you also, I've come to find out have this amazingly varied career (laughs) as a translator and a performer and a musician and songwriter and everything else. So yeah, if you'd like to just give a little introduction to yeah, who you are and what you do for. uh, Okay. Um, yeah,
1: well, yes. Uh, as i said earlier i'm quite old now listen so I, I do have i seem to have accumulated a number of hats over the years some of them um, more deliberate than others i think uh, i mean i did start off in a very well coming from a very musical family uh, back in the day my mother was a frustrated concert pianist and um, we used to fall asleep at night listening to her well, she had four sons, and when we were all tucked up in bed, um, we'd sort of fall asleep listening to her playing Rachmaninoff and Grieg and Debussy and Chopin on the piano. So wow. we didn't really know what a great sort of oral or aural education we were getting without even realising it. With mother, yeah. So, uh, but and we, she sort of insisted that we all played musical instruments. So. Um, you know, we uh, started on the clarinet when I was about 10. And then we had a band with my brothers. You know, there was a sort of old drum kit lying around. So I started playing the drums in the band and then, uh, you know, doing school plays, etc., etc. So it's a very long winded way of saying that I was always involved in the arts, um, music and theater. It was just part of my life. Um, And yeah, so after I'll I'll skip forward a few years, I did a music and drama degree at university and then started auditioning for jobs, if you like. And uh, back in those days in the UK, you could only go up for a professional job if you had what they call an equity card. Now, equity is the actor's union. So, they had for beginners, they had the provisional equity card, uh, and that would take you into your full professional equity card. So, one of the ways of getting your equity card or your provisional equity card was uh, the way, well, the way I did it was through what they call variety, which is like cabaret, playing in working men's clubs, hotels, uh, bars. Uh, I was singing and playing my clarinet and sax, doing sort of American numbers, you know, the great American songbook and uh, summertime and stuff like that, <laughs> uh, which was great. And I gradually got, you had to have 10 contracts. Now, one gig in a hotel or a club was one contract. So I gradually got those 10 contracts together and uh, I applied then for my provisional equity card, which I got, and was then able to apply for sort of theatre jobs, which is where I really wanted to be. So, yeah, I would just go down to London. I was living up in the north of England at the time, so that's how it started, going down on the train to audition in London, which was quite hard work, uh, because it was more often than not ended in failure. (laughs) And... uh, and it cost me a lot of money on the train, yeah.
0: I was so, I a was, lot of time, too. Yeah, yeah,
1: time and money. And uh, but eventually, I got a job in the show Jesus Christ Superstar. I got a nice part in that, it was the touring production of that, and that sort of set me on my way. Then, so, um, the next big job I had after that, I was able to combine my instrumental skills, uh, with my acting skills if you like I did the Buddy Holly story which uh, again a big show and I had to play uh, saxophone in the on-stage band as well as playing the part of Buddy Holly's manager Norman Petty Um, I had a nice acting role as well. Wow
0: no pressure to play on stage (laughs) and then also be acting that's fantastic.
1: Well well it was an actor musician show and my sort of entry into the professional performing world, um, coincided with the growth in actor-musician productions. Um, I yeah, think I was going to pre- say, it
0: seemed like there was a trend for that, like in the past couple of decades, where there's more and more Correct. people playing on stage, yeah.
1: That's right, and it continues to this day, so uh, sort of fast-forwarding to 2018 was my last big show. Um, I did the West End of London for three months in in a production of the Glenn Miller story, um, which was fantastic. Again, I had a nice acting part, but I also played clarinet and alto sax in the 16-piece onstage big band, which was absolutely fantastic, all the Glenn Miller music. So, so being in the West End, doing a show with music that I loved was, it was a really great thrill. And, uh, and we got paid rather nicely as well. Which <laughs> <laughs> hasn't always been the case. Um, yeah, so, but be, just sort of, you might wonder where the translation came from, um, my other hats. Um, I lived in Germany from the age of 18 to 21 uh, before I went to university. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after I'd finished high school. I knew it was something in the arts, but I wasn't quite sure how to get into it. So a friend of mine said, look, I'll get you a job in France in a summer school, teaching into summer school, which I did. I went to France for six months. I was 18 years old at this point. And then my brother, who lived in Germany, he said, come to Germany and I'll get you a job, you know, and you'll earn some money and it's good fun. So I ended up uh, in Bremen in the north of Germany and unknown to me the where I was working at the time it was in a landscape gardening firm surprisingly I had no experience as a landscape gardener (laughs) I got a job digging holes and uh, (laughs) planting rhododendrons but the boss was a great big music fan particularly blues 12 bar blues and um every Friday night was music night at his house. Mm. So he invited me along this sort of callow homesick young man, as I was not speaking any German. And, uh, I started playing the drums in, you know, on a Friday night at his house and then started singing a bit and made contacts that way. And I still have friends now from that time. And, uh, so gradually my German improved, and you know, after three years, my German was very good. <clears throat> and uh, I, so I was a, a sort of landscape gardener by day and a, a rock and roller by night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Beatles could never.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Life only, but, yeah. So it was uh, it was wonderful lifestyle. But I think when I was twenty-one, then I decided, yeah, it's time to time to really consolidate my skills and that's when I did my music and drama degree Mm. so so I've kept up my German skills since then and uh, in fact I was asked to do the Buddy Holly story in Germany in in Hamburg in 1995 so I spent a year on stage acting in the German language and doing the same thing that I'd done in, in the English version of the Buddy Holly story I played saxophone in the Buddy Holly band and uh, played the part of his manager, but in German this time. That's so cool. <laughs> well, it was amazing. It really was. I have, to, you know, I've been very lucky in that. I mean, I'm telling you the good bits. I mean, you, you, forget, <laughs> you, think, you forget, as you know yourself, as a, a sort of artist yourself, you'll find that there are times when there's no money coming in and it's hard and you have to dig, dig in deep and... Um, Try and make things happen, you yeah. know. So, uh, yeah. So those those are my my hats, really. The translating and to bring that up to speed. <clears throat> the translation this year has been an absolute godsend because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, I did some free work for a producer in Berlin back in the summer of 2018. A very nice lady I've known for many years. And uh, I helped her on a script, the the script that she had at the time had been translated by an American uh, into English. And it didn't, there were some references that didn't quite work for an English audience. So uh, I went to a rehearsed reading of the play in the West End in London and um, said to her, I think there are some references here that can be made, can be anglicized, you know, made better for an English audience do you want me to have a go? And she said, yeah, that's fine. I'd be grateful. So I did that for her. And then that was, you know, that was the end of that. But then a few months later, she rang me. Well, it was January last year and uh, said, look, I've got this new musical, a really great show, which I'll tell you about. But um, we want it translating into English. Will you do it? Will you take it on? So I did. And that was amazing because the composer lives in Vienna and I had a week in Vienna with him mm. just before lockdown. Uh, we were going through finalizing the script and sort of working on the lyrics, making sure everything was okay. So, and it was due to open the, the German version of this show was due to open on the 9th of April in Ugh. Berlin for, for yeah. a six week run. And then so, uh, yeah, anyway, on the back of that, this producer, a very nice lady in Berlin, as I say, she has been kind enough to give me four more theatre translations to do this wow. year. Yeah, and I'm currently sort of halfway through the final one, and uh, it takes about two months to do each one. And uh, so and I get paid, and it's nice work. You know, I sit at home here at my desk, and she sends the music through, the piano, vocal, score, Um, the script obviously in German and I sort of immerse myself in I watch it through or listen to it through several times and you know then sort of start making a make a start on translating it you know so it's been an absolute godsend this year financially creatively and spiritually
0: yeah just being able to (laughs) stay connected to something artistic when you can't be on stage yeah
1: absolutely yeah that's it staying staying connected and it's a it's a funny old business you know I'd never have thought that all those years ago when I was struggling to speak German as a young man working as a gardener that those hard years would would still be benefiting me Mm. now you know much you don't quite know where the skills that you acquire in life how they're going to help you and uh so yeah it's been really good
0: that's fantastic yeah because I was going to ask how the translation came in because I just when you know you noted that you're a translator I just assumed that you grew up bilingual you know or or had learned it early on but to come come to it at 18 I mean is a little bit later
1: Mm. yes it was it was and it was difficult to start with um But uh, I, you know, I think I I sort of, I was, I'd always been good. I think being musical, having a musical ear helps you with languages, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did French at school and, you know, I'd lived in France then for six months. So my French was very good. Um, So uh, yeah, I think listening to the German, listening to sounds, recreating sounds. And I used to read the papers. They had a, a big sort of tabloid newspaper there. Um, I didn't understand what I was reading, but it gave me a sense of looking at the shape of the language and how sentences or simple grammar was put together. So that was helpful. And gradually over time, you know, I accumulated the vocabulary and um, was able to then build on those basic building blocks. And, And, yeah, my German, so so it became very good and um, i'm most grateful that it's sort of oh it's a good, it's great to be able to go to another country and speak a language with the na- with the with the natives yeah i like yeah. i think yeah
0: and do you find that it goes in the other direction too, that uh, knowing the German changes the way that you think or speak or write in English? I mean, is there syntax stuff or vocabulary stuff that sort of has has changed, you know, the lyricism that you that you bring yeah. to your own um, language?
1: I That's a good question. I, I don't think it has, but it's funny, it's like driving on the left-hand side or the right-hand side <laughs> of the road. If you go to Europe, somehow there's a switch that always seems to make it possible. <laughs> so I'm able to separate the languages. But what I, what I do find I do sometimes is I will come out with a German word as I'm speaking English to somebody. If I can't quite think of the noun, whatever it is I'm referring to, you know, it might be bathtub or, or bathroom, let's say. I'll, I'll say... Somebody go. Where's where's the towel? Oh, it, it's in the the, the or something like that. <laughs> they go, go what? And I haven't realised I've said it. So occasionally that happens. It's it's maybe to do with fatigue or how much alcohol I've drunk. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, yeah. So I'm able to separate the two languages. Um, I mean, when it came to translating the the in May, I mean that was. Um, And and these musicals I'm doing at the moment, they German is the verb sort of comes at the end of the sentence, and uh, you have to read the whole thing to sort of get the sense of that. And it's a great language for having multiple meanings for one word, Mm. and you have to sort of select, be careful in your selection. I mean, we can maybe we'll talk about this later on, but. um, yeah, so it's been a real blessing to be able to have these languages, yeah.
0: I um I, I sort of feel like I again part of the reason why I was so excited to talk to you, I feel like you're sort of living uh like an alternate version of my own timeline that I would have loved to have been on. Cause like I started studying German when I was very young in school, they just presented right. it to us when I was like okay. nine or ten years old. And I've lost a lot of it because I haven't kept up with it. But um yeah. for a long period of time, I was gonna enter university and and major in German and
2: thought I right. was gonna be okay. some sort
0: of, you know international business lady which ended up not happening which is fine but part of the reason that I asked about the English was that I found that especially as a kid as I I, I'm, I've am i always been, you know, very verbal and, you know, love to read and but I never understood yeah. grammar until I started studying German because of the way, okay. like you said, the verbs and the tenses and everything shook out. Then I sort of yeah. went, oh, that's what a direct object is, you know, <laughs> like I was able to like figure that out. And so yeah. now yeah. Um, by day, I'm a, I'm a book editor. And so I sort of credit right. my ability to uh, to edit in English back to learning German as a young kid.
1: That's that's. It's interesting you say that because I think I came from it or came to the language in a completely different way. I, by mimicry, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because I didn't, hadn't studied it or I I had no sense. Often I'd find myself repeating phrases from friends, you know, when I was working, I can remember doing it, you know, digging, digging in the gardens as a landscaper. I would, They'd say something to me which I wouldn't necessarily understand, but I'd just literally repeat the sentence back to them. So it was sort of, rather than approaching it from a grammatical point of view, which I suppose I've done latterly, I think maybe as I've been doing these translations, I've been more conscious of that grammar side, but I think it was just sort of, What's the word? An organic approach to the language. You know, I sort of repeated phrases, sentences, not necessarily really knowing A, how they were constructed or B, what they meant. And uh, yes, I sort of done it back to front, perhaps, in a way, you know.
0: Well, that makes sense though, as a musician, too. I mean, just learning it by ear and just having yeah. the rhythm and sort of the the spiciness of the of the consonants and you know in your mouth and stuff, that it yeah. just to, yeah. to repeat it and to to live in those sounds and to live in the rhythm and the feeling of it.
1: Yeah. It's important that you say rhythm there because that's uh that's a really big thing. I mean, when I get these um you know, I get the piano vocal score through for the uh, shows and I'll have the CD, sort of pre-recorded CD in German. Try to match up the syllables to, you know, to the rhythms that are written. Um, It's quite a tricky job, you know, matching them up and getting the sense and making it sound accessible. To the listener, I mean, my big thing is you always have to remember who is going to be hearing this. In in my book, yeah, it's if it's a show. I mean, the the one I'm working on at the moment is Bambi. You know, it's uh, the, the 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 sort of uh, the great story of Bambi. There's a musical version of it in German. I'm translating it into English, but it's going to be an audience of younger children and also adults. So you have to sort of they're going to be hearing it for the very first time on a stage when they go and see it. And it can't be too clever. It can't be too, you know, intellectual or obscure. And I don't mean that in any belittling way, but they're hearing it once. I mean, I've heard it 150 times and bashed out each line so said, I think it's right. So I know it inside out, but they don't. So an audience is only hearing these things for the very first time and or they may only ever hear it one time and so I think you have a duty and to try and make it as clear as possible without diminishing the intention or taking away any of the intention of the original author um that's important although I mean what the, the the show that I did last Uh, January, February, March that took me to Vienna the composer when I sort of connected with him he said you you can be as creative as you want or as interpretive as you want with the lyrics which is a great gift in a way because you can then uh, maybe (laughs) not not put a bit more of myself into it but um, because it's not me You know, it's not my work. My translation is my work, but somebody else has written the original words and music and I do try and make sure I'm faithful to them. So it's not Tim Clark's piece of, you know, theatre. But it does allow you being set, being told that you can be, you know, do what you want within reason uh, gives you a little bit more creative space. And um, so that... That was a really nice, uh, the, the show, that show, by the way, is called A Touch of Colour. And uh, it's a really lovely show, <clears throat> a one-person show. Funnily enough, a bit like in May, it's got a string quartet, guitar and piano. And the one performer plays uh, 15 different roles, I think. It's mm. the story of the one person's life. So, uh, yeah, um, so that was nice to have that bit of creative Freedom on that, whereas something like Bambi um, is going to be—I I won't have that same freedom, if you like—and I'll be—I'll try and be more faithful to the characters that are very well depicted anyway in the, in the script. So, yeah, I listen. I'm—I'm I'm learning all the time with every translation I do. I, you know think oh why didn't i do that back then with that Mm. (laughs) or "Hmm," you know so it's a it's a constant process of evolution for me you know
0: well so let's use that as the jumping off point to talk a little bit more about in May and about the translation uh, work that you did on that because I would love to know you know as you were saying you get a little bit of freedom over here on some projects and a little bit of free a little bit more you know strict to the original on others and would love to yeah. know where and may fell in that in that spectrum.
1: That's a very good question. Um, I've been digging out the script in anticipation of this mm. I have I have one, <laughs> Two, three, oh, my goodness. four. The list. It goes on and on. We Lots used, of drafts. Used, yeah, notes on them from. I mean, just to tell you a little bit briefly about the background of In May. Um, yes, please. I've I've I mentioned early on I'd I'd gone over to to Hamburg to work in the Buddy Holly story, uh, the show in Hamburg in German. The person who invited me over there was a producer called Frank Buchler. I was doing the Buddy Holly story in the West End at the time. He was a German producer looking to bring a show over to Hamburg. So he came to London for three days and went to all the shows. Mm. The Buddy Holly story was the last show that he saw, (laughs) and he loved it. So... He noticed in my programme notes that I'd <clears throat> excuse me, put in that I spoke German and French, having lived in both those countries. And he sent a letter then to me and said, look, we're doing a production of The Buddy Holly Story in Hamburg. You speak German. Would you like to be in the cast? So that was how my relationship <clears throat> started with Frank. Uh, so I've known Frank since 1990. Four, I think wow. quite a while now yeah 25 years and um, so back in the and we kept in touch you know And I, whenever I went to Europe I'd sort of you see him in Berlin and stuff find out what he was up to and uh, and then he he rang me I think it must have been the end of the 2000 2008 or something like that and uh, I said look I've got this show I've written and uh it's been translated already but I want this particular musician as as the composer and that of course was Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy who Frank was a big fan of his. He said I can't really don't know how to get in touch with him. He's based in the UK. Can you sort it out for me? And I, <laughs> you know, through through my contact. So in the theatre of music. So I said, yeah, I'm sure I'll be able to do that, Frank. I said, whilst you're at it, send me the show, send me the copy of the script. I'd be interested to have a look. So he uh, he did. And I, I anyway, I got in touch with uh, with Neil Hammond's manager and um, just sent an introductory email saying, would, they, would Neil be interested in writing the music for a piece of theatre, you know? I had a look at the script, which was it, it wasn't it wasn't right. It wasn't quite right. And I said to Frank, "I I think there could be a better version of this, Frank. I don't mm. think it's it was it wasn't technically wrong. It was quite clunky, though, in terms of what I call clunky, or if that if that's an American word, it, it was sort of quite." It, I couldn't see it working too well in a theatrical setting. I think mm. it needed a bit more fluency about it. So I Just said, well, do you as far well, as, as the want...
0: translation or as far as the plot or...
1: No, the translation, yeah. uh, the translation, the, the, the plot, you know, yeah, the, the thing was as it was in German and as it exists now. Um, but that, that particular translation didn't really work terribly well. So So Frank said would you like to have a go at it? And I said, yeah, of course, I'll have a go. So I did. I worked really hard on it and um, sent it back to him. And he said, I really love this translation. Will you be part of the team? You know, will you? um..." So I said, yeah, well, you know, of course. By this time, we'd heard back from Neil, who, who had said, yeah, he'd be interested in having a meeting with us. So... I set up a meeting for the three of us then in, in London. At the, there's a, there was a very nice, I don't know if you've ever been, Alison, to London, but the, um, there's a, the National Theatre is on the south bank of the River Thames, right in the heart of the city. So we set up a meeting there sitting outside on a beautiful summer's day. And Neil really wanted to check out who we were And we were desperate for him to say yes, of course. (laughs) And uh, so we were were as nice as we could possibly be. And Frank flew over from Berlin for the meeting. So So Frank had been uh, a
0: fan of Neil's. Like, had you been a fan as well then? uh,
1: Well, I knew of him because of the hits that he'd had. I wouldn't say I had any of his albums. To my eternal shame, I, I didn't have any, a single divine comedy album i knew national express um something for the weekend they'd been sort of hits in the uk charts um but when i knew when frank asked me to approach neil i thought well i better i better get up to <laughs> speed on, on what on what it this guy is, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, as i say to my eternal shame to admit that but uh of course, I bought I bought about ten CDs in one go, and
0: yeah, because by tw- two thousand eight he had a bunch out. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, and of course was immediately blown away by, wow, this guy is amazing, and uh, there's much more to him than a sort of pop hit, corny pop hit, National Express. You know, the, um, I say corny. I mean, it's a great track of its time, but there's a lot more to him. And so, yeah, I was a bit sort of rubbing my hands with glee at the thought Mm. of, A, meeting him, and B, working with him. Um, So we had the meeting in London, and it just seemed to go really well. And um, I can remember Neil sort of waved himself off, and we said goodbye, and then Frank and I, there's a lovely little pub in Soho called the... um, the Lamb and Flag, which is one of the oldest pubs in London. It's hidden away around a tiny little place around the corner. So we had a celebratory drink in the lamb in the <laughs> lamb and flag that night, which was really lovely. <clears throat> yeah, anyway, so Neil had other projects on, as you would imagine he would do. So we said, look, just do what you can do, you know. And I, you know, I was sort of fine-tuning the script. I sent him the script. And then one day I sort of got an email saying, oh, I've done four, I've done four of these things. You know, bearing in mind the 20, I think think there were 21 or 22 episodes of In May. And so he sent these through and they were great. You know, they were, sounded fab to me, even though they were done on computer strings, you know, they were, uh, (laughs) it still sounded good. And then nothing happened for about a year because he was on tour, he was doing a new album, et cetera. And then he said, Right, I'm clearing my. And we were, Frank and I were very careful and cautious about not putting him off, putting Neil off by constantly hassling him, you know, by saying, Oh, wait, we know we need this. We just thought, This is the guy, and he'll do it when he's ready. Frank had total faith in Neil, and um, so Neil then one day said, "Right, I'm taking six weeks off, clearing my desk. It's in May for six weeks, and uh, and that was it. And um, yeah, so he did. He came back with all this stuff, great stuff, and uh, which is basically what you hear now on the album. and uh, so I flew over to Dublin twice on two separate occasions to work with him, which was absolutely unbelievable for me. Uh, watching, watching somebody like that at close quarters working, working with him, A, it was such an honour, and B, he was unbelievably meticulous, mm. unbelievably precise and detailed about what it was he wanted. And that was a real revelation for me. I mean, you know, I sort of—I've been an aspiring singer-songwriter as part of my sort of things I do. But I, you know, I look at that precision, and yeah, you go, ah, okay, I can see where I can improve my own working oh, practice—not wow. not not taking the easy chord, the easy roots, the easy lyric, you know, whatever. So he was great, very. And really, really generous with me. That was what I really loved about working with Neil. He, for somebody of his stature within the music business, he didn't know who I was. he just got this translation. But he was totally respectful of the process. You referred to process earlier on, uh, the process of matching my sentences that I'd translated to his melodic lines, melodic phrasing, it often didn't work. So we had to find, you know, I'd literally be sitting there. He'd say, oh, I don't like that. It doesn't quite fit or it sounds a bit heavy, a bit leaden. So then literally I'd have the dictionary there with me and we'd go through it, German-English dictionary, and reconfigure sentences or rework words and let's try this this has the same you know trying to be true to the meaning of the original german we, we didn't want to lose that or the sense of the piece so it's a real molding of words and phrases to neil's musical phrases and that but he was very very generous about that very open with the way he worked with me and, and I felt, um, I, think, I think maybe it was really the first sort of theatre thing that he'd done, and I think he perhaps felt a little uncertain and a little mm. reserved himself about doing something that was so far away from his normal, you know, writing songs, going into the studio, recording them, producing an album and then going on tour to promote the album. I mean, that's what he did. And and does still. So I think he was perhaps a little uneasy or a little uncertain about the theatre process, but he he needn't have worried because he just has a natural instinct and flair for telling a story. Um, And, yeah, so it was an absolute honour working with him and a real learning curve for me. The second time I went, we wanted a German version of it sung in German to promote in Germany as well. And so I sang. Oh. And I sang the German in Neil's studio. And uh, and again we had to, because of the way we'd worked on it in the English version we had to sort of there were times and moments where we had to retranslate back into german and re recut the original text if you like sure um, sure which was it was sort of a bit of a mind boggling process because <laughs> uh, neil what we discovered when we were working on the english version <clears throat> neil neil likes rhymes he likes to put a nice Rhyme I don't mean moon and June, but sort of <laughs> just sort of nice to, to break up. I say the monotony of. I don't mean that in a negative way. To break up the almost uh, dialogue that it is. It's sort of sung dialogue in May. Mm-hmm. It's not. They're not song lyrics in a sense. It's somebody writing a letter and. As you would write a normal letter, but it's sung. So therefore, there's no could kind of there's no verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, whatever, rhymes. So every now and then, O'Neill would go, "Oh, I think it's time for a little rhyme," <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Or, or he'd repeat. I can't remember which bits we. I've written it down somewhere, but as I'm talking. And uh, there's a couple of couple of the extracts, a couple of the episodes where he repeats uh, certain phrases. They become almost chorus-like, mm-hmm. um, which weren't there in the original German. So when we recorded the German version with me singing, we had to sort of take all that into account. Oh, sure. and uh, And also get Frank's permission, you know, because he was the one who'd written it. So... Uh, it was it was an amazing amazing process and um, I can't tell you how enjoyable it was really it was um, amazing it changed actually also in the in the when we staged dramatic we know we've had three, three productions of it. So we've sort of, the changes made there as well. And, um, Yeah, because I would love to hear
0: more in... about the the stage versions too. I mean, only having ever heard Neil's version, you know, in the recording. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious yeah. about how it works as a, as a staged piece.
1: Well, I, I have a friend who is, uh, a, a theater director here in, uh, in the Northwest of England. And, um, I just approached him and said would you be interested in this um, I've got a piece of music and he luckily he was a big fan of Niels uh, who, who isn't and uh, so he was sort of ooh, rubbing his hands with glee uh, his wife is a performance artist and uh, so and and he worked with other people sort of um, animators and set designers. So so he staged a production of In May at the University Theatre in a place called Lancaster, which was probably about a 300-seat venue, sort of not a traditional theatre space, but almost an experimental theatre space, but quite a big space, which was perfect for In May. And they had a very large backdrop screen with Animation that changed depending on the episodes of the, um, which, like, you know, with each episode. And his wife played the part of Anna, uh, who is the sort of the main protagonist in the piece. She sang the letters, you know, literally had the letters there singing them. The string quintet was, and the piano were on stage with the performer. Um, And it worked well. We had three 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 performances, so not many performances, but we had one one in Lancaster, one in Brighton at the festival down there. Brighton is a, a seaside, an arty sort of seaside town 40 miles south of London. And also in Glasgow at a place called the Tramway, which is, again, uh, part of some uh, arts festival they had up there, which weren't really so. Those three performances were really good. Um, sadly, it didn't sort of we had great reviews and things, and um, didn't really develop or catch on. We were hoping that some, you know, so let's say a bigger producer or a tour might take place, it didn't quite work out. <clears throat> and um, so in a sense it's been gathering dust uh, that um, I would, I mean, it would be my heart's desire to uh, see in May staged. And I think Frank and Neil would probably be quite, uh, would agree with me on this, that if a, if a director sees a way of interpreting it and um, visioning putting that vision on stage that worked, then please, Go ahead and do it, you know. I mean, the music, the music is so wonderful. The story, as you know, the story of a young musician who is dying. Um, and the letters are these 24 or 20 odd letters to his father who lives in Los Angeles. So um, there's it's room for interpretation for somebody to come in and create a director with a vision. I can't see the music being changed in any way. Uh, And I think that would take away from the the whole thing. But so, yeah, I mean, it would be lovely, Alison, if somebody came along and said, great, I want to take this and do this and and do this, that, and the other with it.
0: Because, yeah, not knowing anything about, like, how how shows escalate like that when they start small, is is that really (laughs) what it would take, is just a director or a producer to say, like, I want to take this and move it on?
1: It, it can work that way, yes. Um, for example, I don't know if you've heard of a show called Everybody's Talking About Jamie. It's mm-hmm. uh, No, it started life as a small show in Sheffield, a theatre in Sheffield, and it was running for three weeks. And sort of word of mouth got round and uh, a producer from London came up to see it. And she was totally knocked out by this show, and uh, I must take it to London. And she did, and it's become a sort of massive success mm. in the West End and a UK tour and elsewhere. So it does happen that way. Um, I think maybe... I'm, I'm not a producer, but I have sent the script out and the CD of In May to various people I've thought might be interested in producing a version of it. There's a sort of criticism comes back and says, yeah, it's a lovely piece, but there's not enough dramatic interest in the script to turn it into a, 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 a play. What I, is I, more I
2: dramatic than like
0: a person <laughs> facing their own mortality? My God.
1: <laughs> I, I know, I know. I. I, I know. In, a, in a way, I think that's down to their lack of imagination, because, you know, it is, It is the. I suppose you could say, well, it, it starts, we know where it's going to end, you know, he's going to die. Um, but in between that starting point and, you know, finding out he's got inoperable cancer and then dying, it's all that emotion that's tied up with it. You know, there's not a plot, there's not a subplot, and I suppose that's where those possibly more commercial type theatres are coming from, that they, is this going to hold the interest of an audience for, you know, plus the fact it's an hour and 20 minutes, which is a lot less than your standard sort of theatrical offering. So I think something like in May is perfect for theatres up to perhaps four or 500 seats maximum. I mean, a lot of the shows I've worked in have been big commercial juggernauts, you know, with where you're playing in theatres of 1,200, 1,500, 2,000 seats even, big commercial productions. In May is not that. It's a much more intimate, smaller theatre piece. And I would love... um, for somebody to uh, maybe sit, maybe somebody's listening to the podcast. Oh, uh, where are you? Get in touch no, with Tim, hard.
0: please, <laughs> ASAP. <laughs> or oh,
1: we'll get in touch with Alison, please. Um, yeah, cause it's a wonderful piece and everybody who did come to see it were intensely moved by it. And we had such wonderful emails and sort of letters from people who had seen it saying, This was just so touching. I've had somebody close to me who died from, you know, in a similar way. And this this is such a, a wonderful thing to hear, you know, with the way the music had presented what was a pretty traumatic experience, if you like, you know, a young person who can't recover from cancer. But I think the interesting thing as well, I don't know if you... Well, you, I'm sure you've sort of thought this, as as, he, as the protagonist approaches the end of his life, he, he sees life around him in all much more vivid colour and detail and um, notices small things, you know, the blue eyes of the dog who comes from next door to look at him and spring is coming, you know, the snow melting, the, the buds are coming out, there's green everywhere and there's a sort of sense a bizarre sense of vitality as his body is giving up on him there's this sense of life going on and blooming around him. And
0: well, Yeah my and favorite piece this uh, February 6th where he says you know my, my life is to be rather short but at least I'm still mm. living it every hour every minute I just it just oh yeah it chills me. Do you know that? It.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I would totally agree with you. Fe- February the seventh, the 7th, yeah. uh, you, you his, you've just got the bare chords, and the and the, his crack, there's a crack in Neil's voice as he's singing it, you know, and the um, the heart rending um, lyrics. Uh, I've just got them up here if I can find them. February the seventh. Um, yeah, there's still, dear father, there's still snow on the ground, but there's sunshine every day. It cheers me up. I was right. Dr. Eisenstein says that nothing more can be done. We're stopping the treatment. Relief. I don't have to hope anymore. I won't be in any pain. No one knows for sure how long I've got left, but I think it will be enough. So that's it. My life is to be rather short, but at least I'm still living it. Every minute of every hour, every day that I wake, I am happy, your son. And that, that every minute of every hour of every day that I'm awake, it just gets me, cracks me up. That And, um, you know, so there's bits throughout this piece of In May that just touched me, um, and I'm sure touched you, um, and touched those people who listen to it. So throughout the piece, I think, like you, I think there's uh, wonderful, um, somebody with the right sense of imagination could really do a fantastic directorial job of this show. <laughs> And uh, and of course, ne- it, Neil's music just enhances and echoes all those sentiments in the script. You know, heightens all those emotions. And um, so, for me, it's a really lovely piece.
0: And it's, I mean, it's just stunning. I mean, I hadn't, you know, known anything about it. Um, I'd i known, you know, that Neil had worked on uh, the Amazons and Swallows piece and had known that he had done yeah. some of this theatrical stuff. But prior yeah. to uh, when Foreverland came out and then this came out as the bonus disc, I remember it took me months to even listen to it because I was like, oh, I listened to Foreverland and really enjoyed it. And then... Um, yeah, I'll never forget that there was one day that I was I live in Chicago and was commuting to my office. Yeah. I have a, a good, uh, you know, a half an hour, 40 minute commute. And it was raining really hard that day. And the and the trains were all backed up and they were packed. And I was sitting all crammed in my seat on the train and I had my headphones on. I always listening to music and was listening to this piece and was just my just breath was completely taken away because I was so transported uh, by the music, yeah, and, yeah. and it was beautiful that I had the, the the time to really listen to the to the whole thing. That the, I was blessed that the train was running so slow because <laughs> I was able to listen to the whole piece, sort of almost yeah. uh, in its entirety, and. Yeah. Um, and then just was obsessed with it after that i mean for for just months and months and months it was all i all i wanted to listen to and um yeah, yeah it just seems like a, a piece that would have been so special to work on uh, you know as far as um you know the music and and it sounds like you know that you, you had this protracted sort of period of of creation between you know the translation Correct. and german yeah. and then the first english translation and then your gloss on the translation and then adding the music and then changing it with neil and um, yeah, just to yeah. live in that world that it created, it, it seems like the the piece has its own sort of life force to it that kind of wanted to be born, you know?
1: That's a very good way of putting it, Alison. Yeah, it, it did. And it, and it was such a long, slow burn. I mean, often, often, as you'll know yourself, these creative ideas come and then get shelved or sidetracked or artists become sidetracked. And so often creative projects do take years you know the gestation period it's a long can be quite a long one I mean I think you know you think of West Side Story I think it was sort of first mooted in 1947 or something and didn't get on stage till 1959 and uh, I'm not comparing In May with West Side Story um, but uh, it was a slow burn with In May but it wasn't going to be stopped I think you're right it had its own sort of and I, the reason I say this, I think, because the three, I mean Frank and Neil, and me, I suppose, we, we had a real belief in it, and uh, still do, you know, that it's a great, a great and original piece of music, piece of music theatre, if you want to call it that. And uh, I think it's still actually waiting for, for the right. Direct or write production to come along to sort of give it to a wider audience. Which uh, it's interesting you say you listen to it a lot. Did you? Did you? How did it affect you? Did you find yourself crying or laughing, or were you just absorbed in the overall thing? How did it work for you, Alison?
0: I mean, I, it it was such a, it was such a perfect combination of, of factors because, uh, you know, like I said, I'd been a fan of Neil's for a very long time. And so, you know, his music is very close to my heart. And then yeah. I've, you know, lived through a lot of death at sort of a young age. My mother passed when I was eight and then mm. her, her mother, my grandmother, um, I lived with her as she passed, um. I had just graduated from college. And so I was maybe mm. 22, 23 when I sort of lived with her and, and was there with her when she died. And then my yeah. father passed when I was in my early thirties and was there with when he died. And so death is sort of omnipresent with me, you know, not in a, <laughs> not in a bleak way, but in a way where I, um, because of those early experiences, I had a lot of friends who, as they were going through their first deaths in their life, um, you know, I I felt sort of like the mother hen who was sort of saying, like, yes. yeah, I've I've been through this. Like let's I can I can support yeah. you and and talk to you and and sort of um level yeah. with you in a way where I don't I don't get scared when people are talking about death. I don't get freaked out. Um, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And so with all those those memories, then it um yeah the piece just felt so so real and so honest in that um in that it wasn't just like a a downward trajectory where it wasn't just like, oh, uh, I found out that I have terminal cancer, uh, how depressing, I'm gonna die, The sucks, you know? That there is yeah, the, yeah. the unfolding of the joy and the life.
1: Yeah, well, it's very interesting that, isn't it? I mean, the way the way you've just described that very succinctly there, it's sort of, I've got terminal cancer, downhill, depression, life sucks, I die, you know? It's not like that at all, is it, in May? It's right. much more, as you say, very life-affirming, life goes on. And I think, for me, those, those, are, those are the sort of lump in throat bits in the, in the pieces when he's sort of that. He's living with this hope, and I think that's part of the human condition, that we all hope it's who we are as a race, I think, as a, as, a, as a mankind, you know, that hope that something's better around the corner. You know, I mean, you talk about, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in you know, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich living in a gulag in Siberia. You know, it's a good day if he gets a bit more potato or, you know, it's not quite as cold. You know, there's <laughs> that hope that things are going to get better. Um and sort of that, when he realizes halfway through peace, you know, there's that extinguishing of hope, you know. Well, it's that 7th of February episode that we both mentioned, you know, we're stopping the treatment, nothing more can be done. I don't have to hope anymore. And so there's that acceptance of his condition, there's that acceptance, okay. <laughs> Do you know, what? I'm, I'm going to die, but that's okay. Um, I can deal with that. And um, yeah, because that hope is an eternal thing in us. And I suppose um, hearing, saying that to yourself, hearing it from the doctor, Eisenstein, you know, can't do anything more. So it's quite a. That's quite a a moment for me, you know, and I I always get that lump in the throat there. um...
0: It's such a beautiful line, though, because I, I also think that a lot of times when when folks are terminal or they have family members who are terminal, there becomes this. Uh, performative aspect that you have to do for other people you know other people who are like how's everything going is there anything i can do to help and they don't actually want to do anything to help and so to, to have yeah. that relief of not having to perform for other people's comfort your yeah. your distress yeah. um and so yeah i really i really love that line too that i relief yeah. that i don't have to hope anymore
1: yeah yeah that's right and i think also his partner, who we never meet, but Anna, you know, his girlfriend, who he's sent away. She never actually comes. You know, he doesn't want her to come. He wants. To, it's a process that he wants to go through the dying process on his own, isn't it? I mean, he sort of. She doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't want her to see him like this. Um. He, but it, or it's a process that he just wants to go through by himself.
0: But then it's that's certain. the punchline: is that as performed, there it's meant to be sung by her, correct?
1: Well, yes and no. It's interesting you mentioned that. Um, yeah, I mean that was the approach. That's where it's in a way so flexible. I mean, we did talk about the father singing those parts. He's mm. reading the letters or emails or whatever as he receives them and
2: mm.
1: you know, it might be the stage that it's the father sort of sitting there with his young wife and young child Lou in Los Angeles on a brilliant summer's day
2: mm.
1: reading these emails or or maybe it's the man himself the protagonist himself who we Who's reading these out as he's writing them, and living the moments? I think the original thing you're quite right was Anna. I think I think what Frank the Butler, the creator, originally envisaged was that Anna would sing these parts or sing the episodes, and that there would be a dancer. He wanted a sort of ballet dancer to represent, or a contemporary dancer to represent. <clears throat> excuse me, some of the uh, the emotions in another form, you know, to have mm. a bit of more sort of theatrical depth if you like to and that, but that I think it's all flexible, it's all doable or it's all removable and I think that's what I said earlier on if it's somebody with some vision and an idea of how this can work, bring, bring the characters in, you know, bring the father in, maybe you know, who knows? Bring and that's, the that's honor it. in.
0: Then, <laughs> right.
1: Never work with dogs or children <laughs> or animals. <That's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's that's the beauty of the piece, I think, that you have this sort of flexibility of approach. Um, but it's, I mean, the, the other bit that gets me, Adam, Alison, is the end. The uh, calling you, I don't know. The other <laughs> bit that gets me is. Uh, at the end when he, on the, when he dies on the 31st of December. and Sorry, no, he doesn't, I'm rubbish. He dies on the 31st of May. And it's such a lovely musical setting. My dear father, it's early in the morning. I feel totally at peace. I'm not in any pain. In fact, I'm happy. I have all your photographs arranged around the sofa, a great big semicircle on the floor. I'm sitting upright, looking out into the garden. It's bathed in sunlight. I feel very close to you all. I'm with you, Father, and everything is joy. Everything is joy. Anna's coming, and May is taking its leave. Adieu. Adieu, as always. With love, your son. Now, the way Neil sings that last line, one of of Neil's characteristics is he likes holding long notes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he's sort of rather proud of that. And he does it here at the end. Adieu, adieu, as always, with love. And then he goes up. This perfect fifth, your son. At that, I can't sit there without crying. <laughs> when I hear this long sustained, right at the limit of his vocal range, in full voice vocal range, your son. And it's like this cry, this plea, but it's also a sort of this is the last word I'm ever going to say. Your son, it just holds it and holds it and holds it, and then you just get the crashing piano chord at the end. A bit like the um, what's the the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, is it? Where you get the crashing piano chord that's held for about two minutes, they keep the sustain pedal down on the piano, and it just crashes. And it's a bit like this here with Neil, your son, you hear the piano go down and it just resonates until it fades away into nothing. And that, uh, so that's another sort of hairs on the back of your head moment, you know, when the tears come and the lump in the throat comes. <laughs> so it's just great. Yeah, it's
0: really the, cool. the the completeness of the piece. I mean, that's part of its beauty, I think too, is, is the very yeah. discreet, you know, I, I, I just love the conceit of these letters, you know, uh, and the songs and the pieces going by day, and that it just gives you this this very very specific little chunk of time, and uh, yes. and yeah. and the, and again, it just seems so purely theatrical, you know, to to say like here is this limit, you know, like a beautiful haiku, you know, like what yeah. what can you cram in the the small limits of just you know these these few songs, these few months, and and just the journey that emotionally yeah. that it goes on. I think that's that's part of its power.
1: Yes, I, I agree with him. It's a very good way of putting it. And I, I would also say, as and you being a big fan of Neil, I mean, his writing is inherently theatrical. I mean, the characters that he creates in his works, throughout from beginning to present day, I mean, characters and images. You see the stories unfolding in his songs, and he. I think in your article you said something very prescient about he doesn't. He don't. I've got it here. Hang on. Um, the strengths that I don't think Neil Hannon even realizes he has, and I, I think you're right there. It's his ability to craft these intensely personal, intimate, honest, unadorned moments that has fueled my love of his music for close to twenty years. And I think you're absolutely right there, Alison. Um, He was commissioned to write uh, for the Royal Opera House. They had a a series of commissions they were giving to composers who'd never written operatic pieces before.
2: Mm.
1: And he was asked to do one, sort of short 20 minutes, half hour operatic pieces with a limited budget, Uh, but staged in the Linbury Theatre, which is the small theatre attached to the Royal Opera House in Mm. Covent Garden in London, Excuse me, and Neil wrote a piece called Sebastopol about the siege of Sebastopol. And uh, by his own admission, he felt it didn't work, I think, because he tried to adhere to a particular genre of how he thought musical theatre should be written. You know, it was a bit sort of a mini version of Les Mis. Uh, And it, it And I think you're right, I don't think he quite realised what his own natural inherent skill set is. And I think that was, I mean, I'm not giving away any uh, being indiscreet here. I mean, he talked about this to me when we met some time after. But I think he felt it didn't work as well as it should have done because he'd been sort of trying to write to a certain style rather than something like in May, which... As you said, he had the freedom to just be himself. And uh, and that's why it worked so well, I think.
0: So had you did you know that he was going to um, record the whole piece uh, himself at, at a certain point? Was that...
1: Yes. Um, I'm just... Yes, he recorded some of it when I was there. In fact, I, I think... You've got me here. Again, I think in that very first session, first time I went to Dublin, I think he recorded it all then, recorded it all then with me. In a sense, I suppose, what you get on the the CD, it's almost a a very good demo. Sorry, he he recorded the vocals. Let me get this absolutely right. The string sound, the string sections, he recorded on his computer in Dublin on string. there were computer strings. The vocal, he sang the vocal to that when I was there. Then he hired Conk studios in london i don't know if you've ever heard of Conk studios it's it's owned by the kinks who are a very oh. famous band the kinks sure. in north london yeah uh ray davis and co and uh, they owned a studio called Conk studios in north london and neil uh put together the string quintet and the pianist in the studio at Conk Studios. I think he was there for two days of recording. Frank came over from Berlin and I came down from Manchester to sit in for one of the days. And that was amazing, amazing, amazing. He used the vocals of the recording in Dublin and put them on top of the string recordings in Conk. Wow. Yeah, so he matched them up. What was amazing about seeing that process take place was, again, his precision with working with the musicians. These were top session musicians he'd worked with, or he knew, and but he was a hard taskmaster with them. And, Brilliant. He was fantastic to watch him working, and he had he had a light touch. He never got really angry with anybody, but he knew he knows exactly how it should sound, what he wants, and that was again a revelation. Watching him be totally in control with those people, Um, yeah. So that was amazing. Actually, the day before Kong, he'd had a rehearsal in London. I went to the afternoon rehearsal with those musicians in a rehearsal studio to get it right and sort of iron bits out. And then went into the studio the following day and did it. And, yeah, it was amazing. So he matched the Dublin lyrics. I think, I think, from what I could gather from his manager, Natalie, who's a very nice lady, she, that at some point he would like to maybe re-record the vocals mm. um, in a in a sort of I don't know better way or more I don't know or redo them but whether that will actually ever happen because the current version is is really nice I mean really well done and uh so I don't know um it was a real joy when it came out as the bonus disc on Foreverland. Um that was Fantastic to I think that was released in 2016, September 2016. And I can remember going to the shop, the music store. I was on tour with a show at the time. Uh Sister Act. I don't know if you know the show Sister Act. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen
0: it, but yeah, I know of
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was playing the priest, Monsignor O'Hara in Sister Act. Great, great role. And I was up in the northeast of England, a place called Sunderland, which is a sort of post-industrial city up in the northeast of England, not too far from Scotland. And uh, I, uh, I, went, I I went, I was waiting for the release date and there's the HMV, His Majesty's Voice music stores in the UK. <laughs> I knew it was coming out on the Tuesday, the 26th of September or something. And I, Going going into HMV's store in Sunderland, <laughs> buying four copies of my own. Oh
0: come! On. I was going to say, come on! How come you didn't get any free copies? <laughs> yeah,
1: I think it was it was the joy of going into the store. Sure, sure. Them. You know, you know that was so exciting. Uh, I did. I mean, I did get some free copies subsequently, okay, good. Good, good. but I can't I can't, I can't <laughs> knock knock Neil or or Natalie's manager. So, I did get some free copies. Yeah, so the whole in May experience was a thoroughly amazing one. I'm watching Neil work and, you know, watching the the theatre production get put into place and sort of, and it's just sort of been, I say, sitting there. um, You know, life takes over, other things take over you know neil's got other albums other shows to do and uh, i think he's writing a musical of some sort at the moment um i haven't been in touch with him for quite a while sadly i mean we're just you know i've been doing one thing and he's been doing another but it would be really nice to um to really get the ball rolling on in may again and maybe Alison, doing this podcast, uh, which I'm very grateful for you doing, to you for doing. Uh, maybe this is the the kick that that ball needs to get rolling again. Something yeah. in
0: the ether. Let's just get something going, spark some energy. Well, and I think there's a hunger for it, too, because I um this is by far one of the most highly trafficked blog posts that I get on my blog. I mean, I, I, I write about music, you know, a fair bit. Um, yeah out of my own love uh, for for music and being a musician but um, as far as uh, search results and random hits and and times that this has been reposted on various uh, music forums like I don't know if you know the Steve Hoffman audiophile uh, forum online that's I mean I think it's mostly for um, uh, a lot of it's for like high like people who really get into like really hi-fi stereo equipment but okay. I think then then they also talk a lot about, um, you know, different remastered versions, like, oh, get this version of the remastered Joshua Tree, okay. not this other one. And somebody on there was doing a whole piece on on the Divine Comedy and linked to to, to this piece. And so it gets a lot of traffic. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, you yeah, know, good. and I don't think that's anything down to me, but I think that that's just, there's a hunger for this piece and for the beauty of it. And just for yeah, yeah. Uh, for someone to sort of, like you say, take, take Neil as seriously as he should be taken, because like, I think that... Um, mm. His work is so gorgeous and and there's a different, I think there's a difference in his perc- perception in the UK versus the US because we didn't have the big, you know, corny, cheesy pop hits, you know, we didn't get National Express over here and we didn't get something right, for the weekend okay. over here. And so I okay. think for myself and and other American Divine Comedy fans, we just know the albums in total. And so right, to us, okay. he's, yeah, he's the Beatles. He's, you know, any of these, he's Bowie, you know, as far as being yeah. a, a a thoroughly, um, you know, album oriented, really genius kind of, kind of composer. And so I think yeah, that there's a, yeah. a hunger for people to to see that recognized, um, especially among his fans. Mm. And so I think that's yeah. why uh, it gets a lot of traffic.
1: Well, I, that's amazing you say that, because I think if if those fans could discover in May, you know, you think of all those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions maybe, of, and they knew there was a theatrical production of Neil Hannon's In May on, I mean, from a commercial perspective, I'm sure it would do extremely well, you know. Never mind, just because, you know because it's Neil, and then when they would get into the theater and be immersed in this warm bath, strings and vocal and emotion, it would be a double whammy, you know, an absolutely amazing experience for somebody to experience live, you know.
0: I totally agree. I hope it happens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. so Tim,
0: tell us what's next for you. What's up on your docket? I mean, now that we're all sort of slowly emerging from the pandemic time.
1: Well, I have, uh, I have, I'm have this new translation of Bambi to do, um, which uh, I think I mentioned earlier on. Uh, yeah, that that's it at the moment, Alice. That will take me probably till. I don't know, the end of um, maybe the middle of August um, to do that. Um, one of the shows, A Touch of Colour, that I mentioned to you earlier, which is the, one of the translations I did back, back in February, March last year, that's uh, getting some interest from various quarters. So when things open up again in terms of travel, um, I might have to go over to Berlin to sort of liaise with the producer, Bettina, over there, and, and just also to touch base with her and sort of have some human contact instead yeah. of via email. Um, so other than that, um, I mean, as a, as a jobbing actor as well, I, I've had, you know... Bits and bobs, let me say, bits and bobs coming in. I've done some voiceovers for some training films, which uh, are quite dull in terms of creativity and, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and content. But I have to pay the bills somehow. And um, that, I mean, I've just done quite a, a big section over the last couple of months not all the time. I mean, I have a little voice studio here. and I do those, I get the scripts through and do those. They pay okay, they keep the money ticking over. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned, which alongside all my sort of theatrical and musical endeavors, I, I did my last big show in summer of 2018, as I said, the Glenn Miller story in the West End in London. And I was getting to an age where I thought, hmm, do I really want to be, you know, going on tour again, a big Mm. tour? Um, You know, because my partying days away on tour are behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Much as I enjoyed it back then, back in the day, I'd rather sort of have... A small beer and go to bed with my book, you know, yeah. uh, rather than parting. Much as I love performing. Um, so I've been thinking about ways forward and um I've spent the last three years retraining as an integrative uh psychotherapist and counselor.
0: Oh fantastic.
1: Well, it has been a real challenge. Um it's only been one day a week at university, and but it's enabled me to carry on with my other sort of creative endeavours and the translations. So I've literally just completed that at the end of May. Ah! Congratulations! Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Thank you. <laughs> so that's huge. That's, yeah, that's been, uh, and I'm sort of. Yeah, that's been a real challenge for me. Um, a different demand on me academically. and uh, But I'm, I've always been curious about life, you know, and I think um, you don't just stop or become one thing. And if, as soon as you stop asking questions or looking for interesting things or following passions, then you may as well give up, you know, um, that's my view. Um, So I feel really lucky um, that I have the translations, the musical theatre translations, um, and I've sort of got enough money just to keep going. Um, I've hardly touched my piano for, I can't tell you how long, and my saxophone and clarinet sit there in the corner of the room (laughs) sort of winking at me saying, (laughs) play me, play me. so there's those areas I need to get back on the horse uh, just for my own enjoyment. And, sure. um, I'm always, you know, I I'm featured at the moment in a, in a television commercial in the UK a national nice. TV ad. Yeah. It paid well. Um, so that's been on, uh, that's been on quite a lot. Um, yeah. So that's the, the life of a jobbing actor and, you know that's the reality of it, um, which I accept, and I'm I'm fine with. I mean, obviously, when I started off, you want to be a star, you want to be this, that, and the other, and I mean, when you get to that, it's a bit like an in may. There's no more hope. <laughs> 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 I'm, not, uh. I'm, not, I'm, not. <laughs> I'm not i'm not going to be the next john travolta or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or tom cruise <laughs> which is fine That that hope uh sort of trans re- remodels itself into pragmatism you know and okay what is it i want and um because you can end up I find, especially in the performing arts world, where you're constantly allowing yourself to be judged by other people, you know, auditions or or gigs even. you. There's always an audience passing a judgment on you, when in fact you can't really let that sort of validate who you are. It's sort of, it has to come from inside a bit. And, uh, you know, that's where you, how do I value? I'm talking like a counsellor now, but interestingly, I think the... The, having studied this uh, you know counselling and psychotherapy for these last three years um, I think it will inform my crea- my own creative work
2: mm-hmm. in a
1: way because one of the big things they sort of focus on is being is your own <laughs> being truthful what's
2: mm.
1: being a genuine you you know Carl Rogers you know the sort of being genuine. Um, what is the genuine you? Because we have so many multiple personas that we adopt for different people, and you know, and, or, or if we're going into an audition process, well, we're all upbeat and happy and high, and you know, selling ourselves, and the exhaustion that comes after that, the sort of deflation, and being being constant. Despite all of those things, what's the what's the genuine you inside? Being true to yourself and um, treating, if you like, as Kipling said, you know, triumph and disaster, treating those two imposters the same. You know, Mm. um, being being steady. So getting to that point, um, I I think I've lost myself in that semi-philosophical rant now. (laughs) but you know what I mean, sort of being being genuine to who, I, yeah. So informing my own work, I, yeah, I think if if I do any, I mean I haven't written any songs for quite a long time, and um, I'd like that's something I'd like to get back to. I love
0: Stronger Now. I mean, like that is oh, a classic oh. tune. Like I, as soon as you sent that over, I was like, I mean, I loved all of your stuff. I mean, I love your voice and, and your melodic sense and and your playing oh, and everything you. is is just is fantastic. I mean, you you were, you know, I, I was a little bit nervous. We were like, well, this isn't as good as Neil Hannon. But I listened to it. I was like, hey this stuff is really good. I love <laughs> I love your pieces.
1: I've known love. I've known pain. I've had riches it all away I've been high, So high so low So low yes, Yeah, well, well, we'll see. Uh, see how it comes out. And, um, I mean, I have an idea for a, I'd a musical, um, an adaptation of a story that I think would go really well, Um, that's sort of bubbling away in my, because doing all the, I say doing all the writing, doing the translation, it's not, they're not my words, you know, I'm, I'm sort of shaping them into an English presentation, if you like, and so part of me always thinks, well, come on, you're, come on, Tim, you know, you're there, you're sort of critical of things that you think aren't very good writing or plays, that I might have seen, put your money where your mouth is. Why don't you take six months and say, okay, or three months? Okay, if you think you can do better, it's no good talking about it or, you know, procrastinating. Do it. See. see. So that is something that weighs on me, and, and I feel... You know, as I said earlier, life. I like challenges in life. I like. I think it. You know, life is an interesting quest. It's an adventure, and and that's something I'd like to do with this story. I'd like to adapt for for the stage. So, that's definitely uh, on my list of things to do sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. Also, part of me, Alison, is sort of, um, I mean, I have to say, by the way, I know this isn't a mutual love fest, it shouldn't become one, but I did, your prose is uh, incredibly accessible and beautifully crafted, which is what attracted me to the article you wrote about in May. It was um, real precision, real insight. You'd done your research and you knew what you were talking about and you presented it in a very... Uh, a very coherent and uh, excellent way so that's my praise to you I, thank you uh, so
0: so much for saying that that really means a lot
1: you got what it was about and you've got the spirit behind it you got who Neil is and yeah it was really it was really good
0: well, Tim, I thank you so much for being willing to chat with me for this whole length of time, and, uh, and go so deep into this. Uh, go so deep into the process of of how you uh, you created this amazing piece. Is is there anything that you would uh, would like to? sign off with tell people where to find you in the world or tell people if they need uh. some therapy <laughs> where to come and
2: find you <laughs>
1: here in england yeah yeah uh no i i just what can i sign off with um well yeah sign up i mean uh if people listen to this and do want to contact me at all um my email address uh, is tim clark music it's all one word, Clark with an E. So, Tim Clark music at hotmail.co.uk. And if you'd like to ask me anything or find out anything about In May or anything else, please get in touch. I'd, be, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I suppose I would just say generally to people listening if you're into the creative world, keep an open mind. You never know what's around the corner and uh, practice I say this to students I've had in the past you know sort of uh, practice your talents hard you never know when those talent skills are going to come in handy um yeah so the creative arts world is a fantastic world to be in you won't necessarily get rich but uh you can have a really interesting and varied life, which I've been lucky enough to have. I've done some great things and I've had some times where it's been tough. So, uh, but that's all sort of um, shapes the person you are and who you become. And I suppose, Finally, uh yeah. And if anybody wants to listen to any of my music, please get in touch. But finally, and I'll be say, sure to
0: link to your uh, to your website with all your clips, uh in the show notes too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> lovely. Thank you. um But I was going to say finally, I suppose I'd just like to say thank you to you, Alison, for 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 hosting this and for listening to me babble on for nearly two hours and uh, or however long it's been. It's been really great and thank you for showing such a, an interest in in may um and good luck with all your future projects and work
0: thank you so much tim this has been a joy oh Lord, but I feel- You were just listening to a portion of Tim's fantastic song, Stronger Now. You can find the whole thing on his SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash timclarkmusic. Well, as you can probably tell, Tim and I got on like a house on fire and probably could have easily gone on for another hour or two. Hopefully I can convince him to come back and record another episode with me sometime soon. If you've not had the pleasure of listening to In May yet, please do seek it out. It's definitely still available on Apple Music as part of the expanded edition of Foreverland, and the online store for the Divine Comedy still has copies of the CD as well. And of course, be sure to find Tim online too! His main website is timclarkmusic.com, that's Clark with an E. And you can find all sorts of info there about his career, as well as links to his own wonderful music. As always, you can find notes and annotations from this episode on my own website, queenofpeaches.com. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.